Why don't we turn, please, in our Bibles to Acts chapter 11. We are grateful for the option of being able to come inside when the weather is as it is. We thought about meeting outside, but decided we thought we would do like, remember we did that mission fundraiser with the t-shirts? We thought we would do a raincoat mission fundraiser and figured we'd do really well um, this particular week. But nonetheless, uh, Acts chapter 11 is where we left off. Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful for the word of God. Lord, and the confidence that we can have to sit under it and to know, Lord, that through it you speak to our hearts. And so we pray that once more, even as Josh has prayed earlier, Lord, that you would bless your word today. Lord, you'd give us the ability, despite any distractions that there may be, to just come in, to enter in, and to hear from you, to receive from you. Bless us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, in in some ways, it could be divided up into two chapters. There's kind of two portions of the chapter, which really are going in like a different direction. Uh, And so we could have divided it up, or they could have divided it up in that particular way. You'll be reminded, if you were with us, and if not, you'll be informed, that in the beginning portion of Acts chapter 11, which we did last week, we took our time considering Peter's interaction with these new Gentile believers. Remember, a Gentile is a non-Jew. And sadly, their history of the Gentile people uh, was a a history of immorality and running after their own desires, those kinds of things. Uh, And Peter, uh, as we saw in Acts chapter 10, had the opportunity to go and to minister to a group of Gentiles. Now, they were God-fearers. They were interested in the God of Judaism, the God Jehovah. They were interested in him applying his teaching to their lives and things like that. But they were still, nonetheless, they were Gentiles. They were living in that world. And the Jews and the Gentiles, very divided from one another, kind of in many ways despised one another, didn't have dealings with one another, all those things that we spent our time considering. And maybe you recall that chapter 11, the beginning 17 verses of it, the whole purpose was it, was to to take a look at Peter now having to go answer for what it was that he did. The audacity that he had to go into the home of a Gentile, to talk to a Gentile, to eat with a Gentile, to interact with a Gentile, and Peter had to essentially go and defend himself. And we spent our time and we looked at that and we considered that. This morning, and part of the reason why this material that we're going to look at today is part of chapter 10 is because it deals with another Gentile group. And so the overall theme of chapter 11 is God's reaching into the Gentile world and bringing those people that were once alienated from God sort of into the fold. But in many ways, this is a story completely separate from what went on with Peter. And so starting in verse 19, which is where we're going to go, we're going to see God's work among a different group of Gentile converts. Gentile converts in a city called Antioch. Let's begin reading. Starting in verse 19. It says, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and men of Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, they spoke to the Hellenist also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. 
for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas, he went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church, and they taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Sweet story. Now, if you go back and look at Acts chapter eleven nineteen, where I began reading, notice how it begins. It says, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. So it references an event that we should have knowledge of, we should have remembrance of. If you've read Acts, if you've been here with us for our particular study, you remember that we were introduced to that fellow Stephen previously. Back in Acts chapter 7, uh, we are int- really in Acts chapter 6, but then mostly in Acts chapter 7, we're introduced to this fellow Stephen, and whom we learned was the first martyr of the Christian church. The first person to give their life for the testimony of Jesus Christ was this man Stephen who had been preaching in the city of Jerusalem, having some success, and finally the people wanted to shut him up, and they did so by dragging him out of the city, throwing stones at him until he was dead. They stoned him, the first martyr of the Christian faith. Acts chapter 7, verse 57 says this, But they cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears, and they rushed together at Stephen, and then they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. Now, those are the last couple of verses of chapter chapter, uh, 7. Look at the first verse of chapter 8. It says, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And the disciples were scattered throughout all of the regions of Judea, Samaria, except for the apostles. Now, that persecution that we see there in chapter 8, that's what Luke is referencing here now in chapter 11. For us, that was six weeks ago. It was just a couple of chapters ago in our books of the Bible, but it was six, seven weeks ago. We may not recall it, but that's the persecution that Stephen is speaking of. And of course, if you remember, if you were with us, you know from that persecution of Stephen, Luke, in chapter 8, began to follow this guy named Philip. Philip was scattered from Jerusalem into the region of Samaria, and Luke began to tell us a few stories about him. We saw that Uh, In chapter 8, verses 4 to 25, in Samaria, we saw in chapter 8, verses 26 to 40, down on the road that led to, to Gaza with the Ethiopian eunuch. You may recall those. Luke then switched from following Philip to a different guy, perhaps simultaneously, and that was a man by the name of Saul. And in chapter 9, he began to follow this guy, Saul, and how Saul was a persecutor of the church, but how he had come to see the truth And he himself became a follower of Jesus Christ. And so he tells us about the conversion of Saul in the early part of chapter 9. And then he goes on and he shows us some of the early ministry of this man Saul down in Jerusalem in the latter portion of chapter 9. Then in chapter 10, he returns back to Peter. So while Philip's doing his thing, Paul's doing his thing, or Saul's doing his thing, he returns and he begins to tell us a few accounts of Peter. And that's what we have been spending our time these last three weeks looking at. Peter's in that city of Joppa and then Peter in that city of Caesarea and Peter receiving the vision and Peter talking to this man Cornelius and Peter coming back to Jerusalem, explaining himself, all of those kinds of things. Are you with with us? You see where, where Luke is going here? Luke is the author of the book of Acts. 
So chapter 8, he tells us about the scattering that took place because of the persecution. And here now he begins chapter 11 by following another group of people. And so he says in verse 19, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution, they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. As Henry Ironside said, or Harry Ironside as some people call him, said, the ways of God's grace are going further and further and further and reaching more distant shores. The gospel is going further and further away from the city of Jerusalem. Notice what Luke says there in verse 19. He says that those that were scattered travel as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. He says, as far as. Now, Phoenicia was located north of, you've heard of the cities of Tyre and Sidon. They pop up a lot in our Bibles. They're coastal cities today, what would be Lebanon, the country of Lebanon, just north of the area of Israel, even today. Just north of Tyre and Sidon was the region of Phoenicia. He references that those that were scattered went to this particular region. That's 225 miles north of Jerusalem. That's pretty far. I wouldn't drive there today. Eh, they'll be all right. all right. They walk there, or however it is that they got there, 225 miles from the city of Jerusalem. He mentions Cyprus. Now, Cyprus still exists today. Beautiful island nation off the coast of Greece, still there today in the Mediterranean. That's 250 miles away from Jerusalem. And then he mentions here Antioch, which is a little bit of an inland city, which is about 300 miles from Jerusalem. The gospel is going further and further and further as far as these particular places. And today we want to focus our attention on this particular city, Antioch. Now, I will draw a note for you. There are a number of different Antiochs in the Bible. Um, This is the one that is specifically called Syrian Antioch, again, located about 300 miles to the north of Jerusalem. There was a fellow, he was a, a ruler of uh, somewhere, uh, and he decided to name these cities after his dad. His dad's name was Antioch. So he named 15 cities after his dad. So there's Antiochs everywhere in that particular region. This particular one is Syrian Antioch. The message of Jesus is advancing, and it's going further and further and further away from Jerusalem. But notice what it says at the end of verse 19 it says that they went further and further away, but they were speaking the word only to the Jews. So as a whole, these scattered believers had not learned yet the lesson that Peter had just learned. Now, what we should be mindful of is Peter's event may not have even occurred yet. All right, So just because it comes a chapter or so before us in our Bibles doesn't mean that these events weren't occurring concurrently with one another, occurring concurrently with one another. But either way, those folks that were being scattered to Antioch and to these other places hadn't yet learned that lesson that God wanted to reach the Gentile people just as as much as he wanted to reach the Jewish people. And so these disciples here that are going to these places, they're only talking to Jewish people. They're explaining to the Jewish people that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the long-awaited Christ. But they're ignoring the Gentiles because they're not going to be interested. They're they're Gentiles. They're immoral. They're wild. They do their own thing. Let them kind of do their own thing. We're only going to talk to Jews. But notice what it says, and I love this, in verse 20. But there were some. There were some 
that despite the fact that the majority were doing this particular thing, there were some that said, no, we have to. We have to buck the system, so to speak. We have to do, do what God has called us to do, even though most people aren't. And so it says there in verse 20, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and men of Cyrene. Cyprus, I, I mentioned to you, is that island city out in the Mediterranean. Cyrene is in northern Africa, uh, area of Libya um, today, also on the Mediterranean. And so there were some men that said, we need to take this message, not just to Jews, but we got to bring it to the Gentiles as well. Look at verse 20. And so they came to Antioch. It says, who on coming to Antioch, they spoke to the Hellenists, preaching to them the Lord Jesus. In Acts chapter 6, there's a lot of reviewing today, which is good. That's, how we, that's why we study our Bibles in the context of the passages uh, but in Acts chapter 6, we were introduced to that term Hellenist. There, in Acts chapter 6, what we saw was that there was a dispute that arose within the church between the Hebrews and the Hellenist. And at that particular time, I pointed out that in both of those instances, the people that we were speaking of were Jewish believers, Jewish people that believed in Jesus as the Messiah. Some of them were Hebrews, some of them were Hellenist. And at the time, I made the distinction between those two groups of people by saying that the Hebrews were Jewish Jews and that the Hellenists were Greek Jews. You recall those terms that we used at that time? Nobody? I worked hard on that. And I thought it would be helpful for us to be able to grasp it or whatever. And so we were introduced to the Hellenists at that time. They were people from a Greek culture. But in Acts 6, they're all Jewish believers. Some are Jewish Jews, some are Greek Jews. Here, the word Hellenist is used again, but they're not Jews at all. All right, so focus more on the Greek portion, not on the Jewish portion, because they're not Jews at all. These are full-blooded, card-carrying Gentiles of Greek descent. And these were the people that the men of Cyprus and the men of Cyrene Went to, we, went to reach. That's hard to say. They went to reach purposefully. They set out, if you will, for the first time purposefully to go into a Greek community and bring the gospel. We might call this a mission trip. They went on a mission trip to the city of Antioch. Now, some of you might hear that and you say, well, what about Cornelius? He was a Gentile. What about all of his friends and families? They were Gentiles. But remember this about Cornelius. He was a God-fearer. Yes, he was a Gentile, but he was a Gentile that was seeking Jehovah. Now they're going to go to Antioch and deal with Gentiles that have no interest in the things of God. They're going to go in and they're going to speak to people that are very immoral. They're going to speak to people that are given over to their own sensual desires and to their sins. They're going to go into a community that's wild, and they're going to preach Jesus trying to reach those people in that community. The people of Antioch were all in as Gentiles, and they fully embraced all that they meant to be a Gentile. Now, Antioch, this specific Antioch, had a reputation for immorality and its pagan practices. Now, that's saying something, because the entire Greek culture had a, had a, a reputation for immorality and pagan practices. And these people in particular, amongst the Gentile people, had a reputation. 
there was a saying. So uh, Antioch was, was located on the Arantz River. I think I'm saying that correctly. I've never heard the word. I've just read it. Uh, it was located on that particular river, uh, river. And there was a saying when a, a particular community became immoral, it says the, they would say the Arantz has flowed into Rome or the Arantz has flowed into Ewing, New Jersey or whatever. So it had a reputation for just being this immoral society. It was especially known for being so. We might call it what is sometimes referred to as the red light district of some major city somewhere. where you don't want to go down there at night because of the things that are going on there. And so for the first time in Antioch, the church is not going to people that are Jews. They're not going to people like the Samaritans that are half Jews. They're not going to a Gentile community where there are God-fearers that are interested in the things of God. They are going into a city where people really aren't demonstrating any interest for the things of God. And they're going to go there and they're going to preach Jesus. Some men of Cyrus and Cyrene. Finally, these Christian disciples, they've launched out. They've done what Jesus asked them to do from the very beginning. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. You can reword that. Go to all the nations, Jews and Gentiles, and preach the gospel. Proclaim the gospel. Finally, they were going and they were doing that. And look at verse 21 in chapter 11. They were really effective in doing it. It says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Some of them. That's all we know. That's all we know of these people. Some of them from Cyrus or Cyprus and from Cyrene. Other than that, they are anonymous to us. They're known by God, certainly but they're not known by any of us. William Barclay, he said they were nameless pioneers for Jesus Christ. And though they were nameless to history, it was their action, as we're going to see, which prepared the way for the Apostle Paul's missionary journeys at which Antioch was the hub from which Paul went in all the different directions that we have in our Bibles. It started in Antioch, and it started with some men from Cyprus and Cyrene, whose names you don't know. Unknown to us, but known to God. Sadly, few will serve unless they are assured that they will be recognized for serving. Few will serve the Lord unless they're assured people will know their name and what it is that they have done. And throughout church history, we see that. It's a tragedy. It really is a sad tragedy because it limits what the Lord wants to do and can do. Because men, women, we long to be noticed. We long to be named for what it is that we do for the Lord. But rather we know what needs to happen is for people who don't really care who gets the credit for the work that is done so long as the work is done. And that's what those men of Cyprus are and those men of Cyrene are. They were such men and their reward is going to be great in heaven. They were foreign missionaries. And whether that was by choice, they were probably at one point down uh, or they were encountered by those that were down in Jerusalem that were forced to flee. And so whether it was by choice because of the persecution or um, not because of the persecution or it was the persecution that forced them to go, one way or the other they went and they preached and they had a huge impact. Again, verse 21 says, a great number 
who believed turned to the Lord. They went and preached Jesus, and people responded. Even in the midst of a paganistic, idolatristic, and that's not a real word, debauched Greek society, people responded when they preached the gospel. Do you find when you want to talk with people, you're a little more inclined to speak openly with a a nice, cleaned up, maybe kid about the gospel than you are with someone that's a little rough around the edges? Is it me? Sometimes I find I'm a little intimidated when I go to someone a little rough around the edges. Sometimes I say, well, they're not going to really be interested in this. Look at them. They're partying over here or they're doing this thing over there. I'll go talk to these nice kids over here or this nice group over there. But the gospel, the gospel preached has the ability to transform lives. And so these guys, they go. We got to go. They go. And they went and they began to preach. They preached the word of God. And because we know the word of God does not return back void, it did, its, it did it what it's supposed to do. People were converted. It says that the, a great number believed and turned to the Lord. They trusted in Christ and they repented of their sin. That's what it means to turn to the Lord. They were going a direction. They turned around and went a new direction. That is after Jesus. It's, it's, it's a really good picture of the place of faith and the place of works in the life of, of the believer. We believe, we trust in the work of Jesus Christ, and then we do the hard work of working or walking with Jesus. They believed and they turned to the Lord. The gospel was preached. Paul would say this in another place, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I don't care if these people want to hear it or not or think they want to hear it or not. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all that believe. And so they went and they proclaimed it. Verse 22, it says, Now the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent to Barnabas, or excuse me, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came, he saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He was a good man, full of the spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So the report of this, of what God was doing there in Antioch, Again, verse 21, that a great number begin to believe. The report of that makes its way down to Jerusalem. That may or may not be a positive thing. We're not really told. And by that, what I mean is it may mean the report came in sort of this joyous way. Did you hear what's going on in a Gentile city of Antioch? It's unbelievable in a wonderful way. Or it could have been, did you hear what's going on up there? Somebody needs to get up there and deal with that in a negative way. We're not really told. What we are told is that the leaders in Jerusalem decide, let's send Barnabas to them. And that would lead to something very, very positive in that city. We look in verse 22. It says they're going to send Barnabas to Antioch. We've been introduced to Barnabas twice already. Acts chapter 4, verses 36 to 37, we were told how generous this man Barnabas was that he sold some of his, uh, his land holdings, and he gave the money to help those that were in need. We read that in Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 9, we're told how he accepted this new convert, Saul, that everybody was afraid of, how he accepted him, stood alongside of him, introduced him to others, put his arm around him, and said, this is a good brother, and you should receive him as such. Interesting, we also note in Acts chapter 4 where Barnabas was originally from. 
Acts chapter 4, verse 37, 36 actually, it says that his name is Barnabas. It means the son of encouragement. He was a Levite. Notice it says he was a native of Cyprus. Perhaps that factors in. There were some men from Cyprus, some men from Cyrene. Anybody here from Cyprus? Why don't you go up there and see what's going on? Perhaps it factors in in some way. Everything we read about Barnabas in our Bibles is positive. He's a generous man. He's a supportive man. Acts 4 tells us his real name isn't even Barnabas. His real name is Joseph, but they called him Barnabas because Barnabas literally translates son of encouragement and that he was a man who encouraged other people. And so they gave him the nickname. Here comes the son of encouragement. So he's a generous man, a supportive man, an encouraging man as well. He took great pleasure, we see, we learn of him in our study of Acts, in encouraging other people to be what it is that God would have them to be. Here in our passage, in verse 24, Luke tells us that he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and of faith. Who wouldn't want to be with a friend with a guy like Barnabas, right? You want him to be your best friend. What a sweet brother he is. And now here we are told specifically... We're not told specifically what the purpose of his going to Antioch was. Go find out what's going on. Go up there, teach them. Go. We're not told what it is, but it seems they give him enough leeway. We're going to entrust you. Go up there and lead these people. Figure out what's going on and what needs to be done up there in the city of Antioch. And the decision that he comes up with, the best decision on his part that he comes up with, we see in verse 23, is that he will remain there and he will exhort them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He gets there to this city of this brand new church that has been birthed with a whole bunch of people that aren't like him necessarily, other than that they too believe in Jesus. And this sweet brother in the Lord sees this work that is going on in their lives needs to be encouraged. He needs to encourage them, continue to let God work in you. Notice what he said, what Luke says, that when he got to the city, he saw the grace of God, and his response was, he was glad. Wow, look what God did among these people. And his response was that he was glad. Now you say, of course, he's a Christian, of course he's going to be glad. Not necessarily. That's not a foregone conclusion. He's a Jew. We learn in Acts chapter 4, specifically, he was a Levite, which means attention to the law, and... Uh, again, that he was a Jew. And yet, he's delighted to see what God is doing among these Gentiles. That too speaks to the type of man that he was, that he's delighted to see God's work. I'm reminded of the Apostle John's words in in his third epistle. John said this, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. I think Barnabas could have paraphrased that to apply it to this situation. I have no greater joy but to see these people that are walking in the truth. And he comes into that town and he sees the fellowship that these folks are enjoying and he's blessed by it. He's encouraged by it. He's made glad by it. Now here's the question. It says that he saw the grace of God. How do you see the grace of God? It's not going to be something tangible that you can see. Of course, we can't see the grace of God, but you can see the effects of the grace of God. And that's what Barnabas is taking notice of with the people there in the city of Antioch. 
He's seeing people forsaking their sin. He's seeing people fellowship with one another. He's seeing people come into harmony with other people and sharing in life with other people. He's seeing these things and he's, knowledge, he's uh, acknowledging that's God's grace. Look what God is doing amongst these people. And he's no doubt remembering what God had done in his own life and in the lives of all those Jews that were down in Jerusalem. And he's delighted by it. He's glad by it. The scripture says that if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. Because of God's grace, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. That's what he's observing. And it delights him. And so it leads him then to exhort the people. Continue in these things. Luke says it this way in verse uh, 23. He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. These guys are fired up about Jesus, as new converts often are. They're fired up about the Lord. But the goal is to be fired up for Jesus two months from now, two years from now, two decades from now. Not just in the, you know, the two weeks following a person's conversion, but for the rest of their lives. The goal is to be fired up about the Lord. And so that is what Barnabas is exhorting these new believers to. Remain faithful. Remain steadfast with steadfast purpose. Keep seeking the Lord. Our objective as a body of believers, your objective as an individual believer that goes and tries to reach into a person's life is not simply to bring people to the place of believing, getting them into heaven, so to speak making sure they sign that fire insurance policy so that they don't go to hell. That's not our objective. Jesus commissioned us to go and make disciples. And so, yes, we want to bring people into the faith through a salvation experience, but to bring them to the place of walking with and loving the Lord each day of their lives for the rest of their lives until they come to the end of their race. And for that to happen one needs to continue faithfully with steadfast purpose. Some of our, uh, our versions of the Bible translate that word faithfully. One needs to cleave to, cling to, hold on to. There's some pictures or some uh, video of some flooding that is going on in different parts of the United States. And you see people that are being swept up and they were in a car and they drove through you know, a, a big puddle or whatever and it, turned, it took them away. And you see them clinging to a tree. I am going to hold on to this tree for as long as I need to until someone comes and rescues me. That's the word that is used there. Clinging with steadfast purpose. That word steadfast purpose, or those words steadfast purpose, it means unhindered purpose, without distraction, first and foremost, in one's attention. And that's what Barnabas sits down and begins to exhort these people. Because what Barnabas knows is what a lot of us have experienced. The infatuation, the excitement that comes from the new relationship one has with the Lord, that infatuation fades. And then faithfulness remains. And you keep walking with the Lord even though you're not getting the goosebumps every moment of your walk with him. Remaining faithful to the Lord doesn't just happen. It's something that comes about because of steadfast purpose. It's a daily decision to seek the Lord in his word so that, he might, so that we might have the mind of Christ. We don't naturally have the mind of Christ. And so we seek him in his word so that we might have the mind of Christ. It's the daily decision to nurture our relationship with God through prayer. 
and to be in communion with him, to talk with him, any relationship you have. If you don't talk with the person, the relationship eventually fades away. It's the daily decision to fellowship with other like-minded men and women. Not just people that say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but people that are running after the Lord. And then you start jogging along with them and heading down the path that they're going. It's that daily decision to do those things. It's the daily decision to come into the light of the Lord's presence, that he might search us. David prayed that prayer, search me and know me, O God, and expose within me anything that is apart from you. It's that daily decision to come to the light, to ask the Lord to search us. Lord, is there an area of sin? Is there an attitude that you need to root out of me? It's that daily process of doing so. Not waiting till next Sunday. Not waiting to that big retreat that's coming up and I'm going to get right with the Lord. Doing it each day. And doing it throughout our day as we need to do so. The daily decision to come into the light. And then when he, the Lord does bring conviction, not to ignore the conviction, but to respond to the conviction. You know what, Lord, you're right. Lord, I, I just give this over. And it's hard for me right now, Lord, and I'm probably going to have to ask you for your help in five minutes from now, but I don't want this in my life, Lord. It's that moment-by-moment -moment decision to have nothing hindering you from your relationship with the Lord. That's what it means. That's what Barnabas is exhorting these disciples to, to continue faithfully, steadfastly in your pursuit of the Lord. He goes there and he begins to exhort them. Now, we've already said this about Barnabas. He was a generous man. He was a supportive man. He took great pleasure in encouraging other people. In our passage today, Luke says he's a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Now we can add to the list, and he was a wise man. In particular, he was a wise leader. Because what we see is that when he arrives in Antioch, he rightly and wisely focused on his main job as the leader of this new congregation. So a revival is breaking out in Antioch. How easy it would have been for him to launch off into some citywide outreach to reach the remaining individuals of Antioch that had not yet come to believe. Now that needs to happen. And he could have put all his resources and all of his attention toward those outreach events. But wisely, what Barnabas does is he spends his efforts strengthening the church family itself. And notice the result. Look at verse 24. It says, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Because what Barnabas realized is that the stronger the people were in that congregation in their faith, the greater impact they would have for the faith. And so he focuses his attention as their pastor, so to speak, in teaching them and exhorting them and strengthening them so that every direction that they go, they could be effective missionaries for Jesus. That's what Ephesians chapter 4 says is the, if you will, God's plan for church growth. Leaders in the church dedicating themselves to building a strong, healthy congregation. Again, because it says the church is equipped for the work of the ministry that exponentially the ministry gets done. Barnabas realizes this. He's a wise leader. Now, verse 25 in some regards, seems to take an unexpected turn. It goes in a direction like, oh, that's interesting. But in reality, it's perfectly in line with what has been building up. 
Notice what verse 25 says and 6. It says, So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so we're, you know, we're looking at Barnabas, we're looking at Antioch, we're looking at the work that is being done, and then Barnabas leaves. But he leaves with a purpose. He leaves to go find this man Saul. And this, as I'm going to attempt to show you, is a mark of the humility of Barney. Of Barna, Barney. We'll call him Barney. Right, he's our friend. Uh, it's the humility of Barnabas, this great man of God. So let's you know, get the picture. Barnabas has been sent to pastor this large church of these new con- converts to the faith. The church is growing. It's undeniably having an impact on the community. And yet here now is this pastor of this church, Barnabas, realizing that the people need something more than he is able to bring them. And so he's exhorting them, he's encouraging them, but what he knows that these people really need is someone to teach them, particularly a person that's familiar with the Hellenistic background. And that's not him. Somebody that can take them deeper, further. And that somebody is Rabbi Saul. Remember Saul, the teacher? The fellow that he had met 10 or so years ago? So I mentioned this earlier in Acts chapter 9. Barnabas was the one who came and encouraged Saul. Saul persecuting the church, putting people to death. We, we learned all of that in Acts chapter 9. Saul gets converted, and now none of the Christians want to hang with him. They're afraid to hang with him. Oh, no, it's, he, he's trying to go undercover, and he's going to find out who we all are, and he's going to kill all of us. And so no one will talk with him. No one will hang out with him. They won't open the door. Everyone, turn the lights off. You know, and they're hiding in the corner or whatever. And Barnabas is like, I know this guy. I've met this guy. I'm going to take a chance with this guy. I don't think he's trying to fool us. And takes, I said he takes him out to coffee, and he says, I think this dude's a real believer. And he puts his arm around him. He brings him to the, the apostles. And he said, I want you all to meet our brother in the Lord. His name is Saul. So they know one another. They have a relationship with one another. If you remember that account back there in Acts 9, Saul then began to effectively debate with folks, particularly Hellenistic folks, it says that in Acts chapter 9, in Jerusalem. Eventually, a movement rises up, and they want to kill Saul. And the decision at that time is, you've got to get out of here. And so they, they get Saul out of there. They put him on a boat. They send him back to his home country, which is like 400 miles away. They send him back to the city of Tarsus. And that's all we hear of Saul for about 10 years. 12 years, I believe, is what the commentators believe it is. They're in the city of Tarsus. But here now in Antioch, Barnabas, I suspect, praying. A good work is going on, and yet praying for his congregation and the people that he loves and just realizing, I just don't feel like I'm the one that can meet what these people need. And in there, the Lord brings to his heart and his mind Saul. And he says, you know what? Saul's the one that these people need. And so he gets on a boat or a horse or whatever it is, and he travels to Tarsus. A hundred miles or more from where Antioch is, he travels to that particular location, and he finds Saul. Notice what it says in verse 25. Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Now that word look for, or those words, it means more literally to hunt him up. 
So it's, what it's telling us is that Barnabas searched for, couldn't find him, went out of his way, went everywhere, talked to people, chased them down, and had a very difficult time finding Saul, but he found Saul. So he traveled this long distance to get this guy who's essentially going to replace him at the church, and he went through, through much difficulty to do so. He was so valuable to him and to the people that Barnabas was willing to do whatever it took to get him. So he searches hard for Saul. He finds him. Now notice verse 26, and it says, and he brought him to Antioch. Now that says something to us about this rabbi Saul, because that word brought there, it means to lay hold of something to bring to its point of destination. The picture that came to my mind was when I was a little kid growing up in uh, Catholic school, and the nun decided it was time for me to go visit the principal, and she would take me by the ear, some of you grew up in this, and she would pull me by the ear down the hallway, down the stairs, down the other hallway, and deposit me in the principal's office. Uh, she was determined. She brought me there. Again, the phrase means to hold, uh, to lay hold of something to bring it to its point of destination. So that tells us that Barnabas had to force Saul to come with him, maybe even potentially drag him, I don't think by the ear, but to drag him along with him back to Antioch. So Saul is not sitting in Tarsus grumbling and complaining, can't believe I haven't gotten my opportunity. I can preach better than anybody else. They need me to. That's not what he's doing there in Tarsus. He doesn't see Barnabas come through the door, recognize him, and say, well, it's about time. Now let's go do what God has called me to do. Rather, Barnabas has to convince Saul to come with him. He has to convince Saul to take on this role. I suspect, knowing Barnabas, there was a whole lot of encouraging going on here. Because Saul, you remember, he had started in ministry and was seeming to have an impact before people wanted to kill him. But remember, they wanted to kill him to stop him because of the impact that he was having. But Saul started in ministry and then he stopped. And he did so. That was about 10 years earlier, 12 years earlier. And it's not hard to imagine that there had been quite a bit of discouragement in Saul's life during that time period. Wondering, yeah, I thought that God had a role for me. I thought God was calling me to something, and here I am. I get up every day, and I have to go make tents. I'm, I don't feel like I'm having the impact that the Lord would have for me. And all of that discouragement, maybe he thought, you know what, my past, I just did too many things that were wrong, and God's disqualified me. Maybe he thought, you know, I, I guess I wasn't good at what I was doing. I thought I was, but Jesus made it clear that I wasn't, and he sent me all the way up here to Tarsus. And into that walks Barnabas, the son of encouragement. And he begins to encourage Paul. And he says, Saul, in this case, he says, I want you to come back. These people need you. They need your ability to speak into their lives and understand the perspective and to open the scriptures to them. Would you come with me? And so they do. Look, it says in verse 26, for a whole year they met with the church and they taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And there together, Barnabas and Saul, they taught and they encouraged the people of Antioch. They made the church there strong in Antioch. And as I said earlier, Antioch is going to become the Christian hub of that region of the world. 
from which the missionary endeavors would go to the north and to the west and even to the east a bit there that Paul would be on, which we're going to read about in the rest of our study of the book of Acts. Now remember what I said about the city of Antioch. Antioch, Syrian Antioch, was the most disreputable city in the empire. And the Lord took it and turned it to the home of the most impactful sending church of the first century. No situation is hopeless. No community, no family, no individual. God can change people, and God can change a community. Notice Luke also says, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now those last three letters, I-A-N, Christian, those last three letters there, I-A-N, it refers to one belonging to another. And so, for instance, a Caesarean was one belonging to Caesar. A Christian would literally have meant one belonging to Christ. And it was no doubt, well, maybe there's some doubt, I don't know. It was probably, possibly meant as a derogatory term. Oh, they're, the, they're the Christians. Much like in the 60s and the 70s, Jesus people began as a derogatory term. Oh, great. Here come the Jesus people. But the Jesus people loved it. I like, yeah, call me that. Here in Antioch, oh, that's one belonging to Jesus. Oh, thank you for saying that. That's so nice of you. For, we're saying that about me. They embraced it. They loved it. Yeah, call me a Christian. They were proud to be labeled as people of Jesus. You're right, I am a Christian. I do belong to Jesus. They would say they're in Antioch. Again, God transformed the city of Antioch. Isn't that sweet? Isn't that great? You're still thinking about it? Eh, let, me, let me get back to you. I'll let you know how great it is. I just think it's great. And, and I think part of the reason why I think it is great is not only because the hope that it gives to our society and our community, but the hope that it can give to every single individual life that we come into contact, to, uh, contact with. Jesus can change people. He can even change you. And we all need to be changed. Amen. Well, that's where we're going to stop for today. There's a little more in the chapter, but we'll pick up uh, the next time we're together. Why don't we close in prayer? Father, we thank you, Lord, because we have been impacted in this room, watching on video today, we have been impacted by those unnamed missionaries from Cyprus and Cyrene. Those men who had the courage, those men who had the audacity to leave their homes and to go into a foreign, immoral community and preach Jesus because they knew that the message of the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And because they did, that community was transformed. Because they did, a church was born. Because they did, missionaries went out into all the world. Because they did, the Apostle Paul was encouraged and established in the ministry that you would have for him. Because they did, the, the scriptures were written for us, half of our New Testament. Because they did today, we can sit here and glean your wisdom and your heart from these scriptures that we can apply to our lives. Some unknown missionaries. And so, Father, I pray that you would give each one of us a heart 
to serve you for your glory and for others' good, that you would receive the praise that you deserve, that the kingdom of God would be advanced as it should, and that you would do so even through people like us, unworthy, undeserving. So Lord, take this word, we ask humbly, and bless it today. Lord, that the seed of your word would go down into the depths of our hearts, that soil, so to speak, and it would begin to bear much fruit. Even from this indescript day here at the end of August in 2021, that this will be a day where much fruit was born because the word of God went forth. And we believe that that prayer honors your name, and so we lift it up in your name. Amen.